welcome back to Understudied with your hosts, Dara Wilmarth. Hi. And Colleen Rooney. Dara, let me do the intro today. So. Who are we talking about today? <gasps> wow. You are really taking charge this episode. Yep. <laughs> today, we are talking about a very actually well-known in some circle playwright lady. Okay. So she does kind of and kind of not fit the bill for this. Her name is Afra Ben. Do okay. Do you know who she is? I do. But that's, I'm in the theater circle. So like within the community, a well-known person, I would say outside of theater, maybe not. And even within the theater community, she is mostly only well-known in the theater scholar community. Yeah. What's her most famous play? Well, we what do we know her from? We know her for her play, The Emperor of the Moon, which was adapted oh. here at the University of Oregon in, like, 2015 by J.K. Rogers and was produced by the university. So that's what we know her from. And she was covered in the Theater History 2 class that the lovely Ellen, Ellen Crest taught us. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how we know her. Why don't we just go over, like, who she is? So, she is considered the first professional female playwright. Professional mm. meaning she was paid. She was published and she was paid. And that is and isn't true. Like, she's the most famous woman writing in this time and she had the most commercial success. But there were other women who wrote at this time and were published and performed. Mm, I love history blocking out the lesser known folks. Yeah. So, she wrote during the Restoration, which was in 1660 to 1669. Oh, that's the, the like, oldest playwright, or, like, farthest back uh-huh. than we've talked about we've so far. We've been going back chronologically. Yeah. I mean, religion was definitely tied up in it, because all of the wars Everything. in England are yeah. about religion. So, she was, like, what is considered a Tory. So, she was, like, a, oh, okay, okay, she okay. was an apologist for the monarchy. Okay. But that's when she was writing, but she has a very unclear personal history. Like, there is not much known about her prior to when she became published. So, the one thing that is known for sure is she was a spy for a brief time Uh, on the Dutch for England. Wow. Multifaceted. Yeah. That's, like, the only thing that is really known concrete. She was probably born in, like, 1640, and she went by a different name then. And she maybe got married to a Mr. Ben, but she was then widowed. It is widely contested in academia if her husband actually existed. Or if she faked it to have the status of a widow. Interesting. I wonder how easy it was to fake that back then. I don't know. Because she wouldn't have to, like, create any photoshopped pictures with a random (laughs) man or any documents, really. She could just be like, yeah, I was married. He died. Whoops. My name's Afro Ben. Pretty cool name. That's a spy name if I ever did hear one. It's a really good name. Mm -hmm. This, but also her widowing and the contention around if her husband actually existed leads to some questioning her sexuality, which is kind of baseless. But yeah, it's kind of interesting also. There's very little known about her, like, personal life. Mm. So she's she's pro-monarchist. Yeah. Okay. She was an apologist for James II and Charles II, who were the monarchs who were part of the Restoration. So he was Catholic. Yes, he was. Yeah, because Charles was the one who was booted. Yes. Ah, okay, okay. He's the son of Charles. Okay, okay. Charles Charles was booted. Charles II is the person who comes after him. So we're post-Elizabethan by about 100 years. Uh Uh-huh. Charles I gets booted out of England. Uh Uh-huh. England briefly becomes a republic-type thing led by Oliver Cromwell. 
And then he dies. Uh-huh. And then James II is invited back. The monarchy is restored. And then Charles II takes over. Okay. Because I'm pretty sure he, Ch- James II dies. England is Catholic. So Aphrodite is probably Catholic. Probably, yeah. She's probably Catholic. She she's was, a monarchist. Yeah. And she was also very political in her plays. Okay. Which is interesting because she has this weird combination of conservative and progressive for the time politics. Because she wrote very freely about sexuality and the power of women, but also was a monarchist and wrote, like, very conservative plays. Um, Because they were commercially published and commercially successful, so they held the dominant ideology of the time. Interesting. Yeah, so she had a lot of commercial success. And she was also called a plagiarist, but most playwrights and writers at this time plagiarized in some way or another from each other because copyright was kind of not a thing, but also kind of was a thing with publishing. So it was hard to prosecute someone for plagiarism. Mm -hmm. She was called a plagiarist at the time likely because of her sex. And people trying to be like, a woman, she, she steals can't write. all she, of her ideas. She doesn't have original and thoughts. And she did plagiarize her play, The Rover. Oh. But that's not uncommon for the time. So she didn't do it any more than anyone else. Mm. But she was the one who got called a plagiarist. Mm. Anyways, <laughs> publishing at this time was really interesting. So mm-hmm. what would happen is a publishing house would buy the rights uh-huh. for that edition of your piece of work, uh-huh. plays for Afroben in the early time, then they would have like a cover page on your first page uh-huh. that would describe the rights and everything and who the publisher is. And mm. then they would send it off to get um, bound and booksellers would pick it up. Publishing was a lot riskier of a business at this time because so much capital was needed up front and your book needed to be like a success in order mm. to make mm-hmm. money back to the publisher and for that money to get back to you. Mm-hmm. So Afra Ben was, like, kind of a rarity in this time because she did make her living off of publishing. Yeah, I feel like that, just to go back to was there or was there not a Mr. Ben, <laughs> that makes me think that, at least in some capacity, she had some kind of access to a dead person's money. You know, like, whether it's, like, family or dowry or just like money left from a dead husband or whatever she was upper class so so like she had something she had she got there somehow she did have money she did come from like upper class so she did have access to like being able to read and write which is a big thing yeah but her being a woman in this time like the reason we remember her as like the first professional playwright but women at this time were emerging as a market and as being marketable to everyone. Like, Mm. women writers had a whole, like, a weird enthusiasm about them because they could write about women things and they could put that in the title and then other women would buy it. This is the time that women were allowed back on stage in England. Because of this, this success that she had, she was very popular at the time, Uh, like, just super super popular at the time her plays were profitable to publish and for people to read and perform because this is a interesting time in playwright history because the rights of plays was moving from acting companies who Mm. were producing their plays with their in-house playwrights and shifting to the power to the playwright themselves in publishing which is what stands today yeah that's the system we run on now with royalties and stuff. So. Oh, royalties. Royalties. Bring back the royals. Bring in the royalties. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Afroban actually moved to writing prose uh, after her, like, period of success with plays. Um, hmm. 
And so, but she still had, like, her name brand recognition and was still profitable. And actually, this led to volumes of her work being published with new work long after her death. Mm. So up until, like, the 1800s. So she died in 1689, and her work was published with new volumes well into the 1800s. And so someone was making money off of that because she didn't have any... It must have been the, it yeah. It publishers. must have been the publishers because and, that's like the contract that you would agree to. Yes. So there are like works that weren't actually hers that were included in those things. Oh, because um, oh, she I had like okay. That's what I mean by name brand recognition. People wanted to keep buying her work through oh. the eighteen hundreds. So it's like how Queen, uh-huh. who's the name recognition uh-huh. Queen the band, yes, um, publicizing Adam Lambert also. Well, no, because they were kind of, but also they were published under her name. Oh, yeah. so she wasn't even writing them. No, because she died in 1689. So, and then she kind the of fell writing. off after that <laughs> and was, like, promptly forgotten. Like, quickly? Quickly. Quickly forgotten after that. Um, Kind of lost to history, wasn't really taught in any theater history classes until one researcher named Janet Todd started publishing a lot of research about her. And then she kind of like brought Afro Ben back into the mainstream of scholarly research wow. to be included in the restoration. Because a lot of modern productions of restoration comedies, which is what Afro Ben wrote, mm-hmm. their comedies written in the restoration, mm-hmm. they have a very distinct style. A lot of modern productions of restoration comedies are only plays written by men. There were women playwrights writing restoration comedies at this time. And so this woman scholar was like, um, hey, what about Afro Ben? Yeah. Who was actually popular during the time also. Yep. And sort of speaking to modern productions of restoration comedies, modern productions of restoration comedies have historically not done well. So this also kind of brings up this idea, especially in England, of like modern productions of restoration comedies the people who would have been on stage for the most part would have been white people and so when you do modern productions of restoration comedies do you only include white people in the casting and Mm. i think this kind of speaks to a really great book chapter by ayana thompson in her book passing strange shakespeare race and contemporary america Mm. um the chapter is called multiculturalism and it talks a lot about casting. Like, it, it defines people of color being cast in specifically Shakespeare plays, but I believe we could sort of extrapolate it out to restoration comedies yeah. as well. There are, like, four different kinds of race-conscious casting. There's, like, colorblind casting, oh. where you cast people of color in roles in restoration comedies or Shakespeare, ignoring race and ignoring all the connotations of race on stage. Which I believe is the wrong way to go about this kind of thing. Mm, yeah, because if you're not conscious about race and you're just doing like, oh, who fits the role best, your subconscious biases are going to put like a black person in a servant role or in a like poor person role or whatever. Or you're leaving it up to your audience to sort of figure out if race means something in this oh, play or I've not. I've never thought about it That's about what, what the audience. That's what she talks about in her in this chapter. It's really interesting oh. um, and it like leaves your audience to sort of flounder in does it matter, does it not matter because people are going to notice it <laughs> and if you don't like 
define how race interacts with your text, mm-hmm. then you're sort of leaving your audience hanging in a way and you're not doing a good service to the POC actors that you are casting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I literally, I've never thought about it from like the perspective of what might the audience think based on which choice you make racially aware casting. That feels like something out of the um, We See You White American Theater. um, Oh yeah, it does. Posts and uh, I don't know if it's like a blogger or a website or a group. Um, I know that it's like there is a list of demands. Yeah. I, b- I believe that it does fit into that. And I think that is one way that maybe we could see restoration comedies and Afro-Ben performed more frequently is by recognizing not only race, but also larger contexts of the time mm-hmm. and making more deliberate choices about submersing your audience in the culture and period of, the, of where this was produced instead of trying to make it more relatable. Yeah, and I think that doing it in the style of the time, like as in casting all white people or whatever, that's how you take it away from it being actually relevant to today. Mm -hmm. Because like even Shakespeare, there is plenty of space for you to cast BIPOC actors in any of those roles. So Afro Ben, what a cool, interesting spy widow question mark lady. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Thank you for talking about her today. I I feel like this is the most like engaged with the content I've been because I I do know about England. (laughs) And I don't know very much about unfortunately I don't know very much about Ireland. Very fun. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. Is your oh, well my cup. full? Is your my cup, cup full? My cup, my cup is full of knowledge. But as always, there's a little bit of room on top for more knowledge to be gained. Good. Cause it never can fully fill. Good. So thank you for putting together this series. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Maybe we'll pick it back up sometime. Maybe. All right. That was Understudy Theater History, Episode 3. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next time, if there is a next time. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.